friends, we're thrilled to have you all here with us. We're thrilled to partner with Congregation Ortzion with this on this event. Thank you for your partnership. As always, welcome Rabbi Green to town. Happy to see you. And um, we are thrilled to study from and learn from one of the great teachers of Torah, one of the great livers of Torah as a Jewish activist, Rabbi Sharon Brous, who I look up to so much. Um, and to do that in honor of our friends, uh, Cheryl and Stan Hammerman uh, in their, in their um, annual Hammerman lecture. So um, in the interest of starting on time, we are going to hear a tribute video from Stan and Cheryl's daughter, Jessica Hammerman. And it is my honor to be here today to celebrate my parents, Stan and Cheryl Hammerman, and to introduce Rabbi Sharon Brous. As many of you already know, this Hammerman lecture honors my parents, Stan and Cheryl, as the visionaries behind the founding of Valley Beit Midrash. The VBM emerged to welcome scholars and experts from a spectrum of fields to share their ideas with the community about Judaism, Jewish thought, Jewish ideas, Jewish culture, and Jewish history. Uh, under Shmuley, it has since become a place for Jewish ethics and activism, a shift which I know my parents have been enthusiastic about. Rabbi Sharon Brous, our teacher for today's event, has been, along with Shmuley, one of the forerunners of my generation, meaning the meaning of Jewish activism. We can dive back into our tradition, into our the raw materials of our tradition, and find wisdom and to lean on each other. With her synagogue, Ikar, in Los Angeles, and her presence representing us Jews on the national stage, she has shown how Judaism can be reimagined. And just so I get don't get into too much trouble, I will say that Rabbi Browse is among Stan and Cheryl's favorite rabbis. It's a huge honor for this these critical-minded Hammermans. Um, so I asked them to tell me about how they first learned about Rabbi Browse and what uh, leads them today to be so inspired by her to follow her uh, sermons via email and to forward her podcasts and YouTube. Um, to me and my siblings. So they told me that they first heard of Rabbi Browse from me actually at B'nai Jeshurun in New York City. Um, I had told them how exceptional she was. I learned um, with her in my own sort of reapproach to Judaism um, in an introduction to Judaism class. And I loved the way she truly brought meaning to the everyday. This was back in 2002, I believe. And I just, I remember her talking about, you know, things like pepperoni pizza and all kinds of other things, but also super deep philosophical and historical ideas um, that just kind of blew my mind the way that we could use our intellectual and emotional and everyday living and kind of fuse them together and see them through this Jewish lens. Um, so back to how my parents then continued um, to find Rabbi Brous and they attended her synagogue in LA when it was smaller and then they learned that they could attend online. And so the, I have a couple of direct quotes. So Stan said, quote, she is an enlightened voice of Torah, Talmud and social justice. And she connects 
Jewish studies to modern day crises and modern living. And she's the person to do it. That's what he said. And Cheryl um, said that, quote, Sharon Browse grew into the needs of our generation to the connection between what was going on in our world and what the Torah says to do, unquote. So that's, those are some of the things that the Hammermans um, love and admire and love to learn, um, what makes them love to learn with Rabbi Browse. So, um, and I too have this connection, which dates back, you know, 20 years to, you know, watching Rabbi Browse and continuing to be inspired by her. Um, and, you know, kind of, I sort of see her as a mentor in some ways, the way that she is not afraid to speak, to speak her mind is she's not afraid to bring politics into the room. And she's known to say that the Torah is the most, is the most political document. Um, and personally, I was so moved to action and tears by her sermon after the murder of George Floyd. So um, I'm not going to go on anymore. I know we're all eager to learn from her today. Um, she has so much in store for us, I'm sure. So it is my pleasure to introduce Rabbi Sharon Browse. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica Hammerman and Rabbi Browse. Welcome. I'm so moved by this intro. Um, Jessica, thank you. And thank you to Cheryl and to Stan. Um, I'm really deeply moved by the opportunity to be with all of you. And so grateful to all the folks at, at Valley Beit Midrash and, and especially to your team, which was so flexible um, when my kids are at camp. And uh, we were told that because of COVID, uh, the camp dates shifted, and, and I'm so grateful that you were able to make this work um, with the with the new summer schedule. So I know we're all in some kind of upheaval in this time. Um, so I, I just want to start by by saying I, I I'm really moved to be with you. I loved being with you a few years ago when I was able to be there in person. Um, Rabbi Andy Green, uh, thank you, um, thank you for co-hosting this. And to uh, my friend and my colleague, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz, um, I am so moved by your Torah and by your humanity. Um, I know that that's a big part of the reason why so many of you are here and connected um, to, to VBM. Um, there are people all over the country and really all over the world who look to you and take inspiration from your Torah and from your voice. Um, and I, I read, um, I'm sure this is a this is a famous teaching of yours that if someone offered to give you eighty six thousand four hundred dollars every day for the rest of your life, um, but you had to spend it every day, um, wh what would you do? And and God gives us eighty six thousand four hundred seconds every day, not one of which can be recovered. Each moment really matters. And I just want you to know that in addition to your incredibly courageous voice on the public stage, I take that spiritual message very personally and very seriously. And um, I think it's very much connected to some of what we'll talk about a little bit today in terms of how to make, uh, to do everything in our power to make every moment of our lives matter um, and be and be part of what we're offering toward the greater good. So thank you, um, my friend, uh, my teacher and colleague, I'm really, really grateful to you. And, and, and thank you, Rabbi Green. I'm just thrilled to be a part of this conversation. So our topic for today um, is faith and justice, where our greatest aspirations meet our core commitments. And I will um, just be honest with you that, that what's top of mind for me 
um, today as we go into this it is an article that was written by a colleague of Rabbi Green and Rabbi Yanklowitz uh, and, and mine um, named Rabbi Michael Adam Latz, who some of you um, might know well. He's in uh, at Shir Tikva in Minneapolis. Um, he actually was just a couple of blocks away. Jessica mentioned George Floyd's murder earlier. Um, he was out for a walk with his husband just a couple of blocks away um, when that happened and he heard the sirens. And, um, and he has been also an incredible force for good in this world um, and very much a part of um, of creating the space for, for the Jewish community to be part of the work of racial justice. Well, there was an article that was written about um, him and his community a couple of days ago um, because they gave sanctuary to a family of, I think, seven people in the basement of their shul, um, which is not a particularly large or wealthy synagogue, um, but they gave this family sanctuary for more than three years until they were just now granted a stay of deportation. And after three years of living in the basement of the synagogue, were allowed to leave and to go out in the sunlight um, and essentially uh, be free. And so this community of Jews in Minneapolis met every need of this family, their housing, their food, their school supplies, their internet, their computers, games, books, everything uh, that they might need. And it's really an, an incredible story. And reading it, I was absolutely just awed um, by what our Jewish communities can do when our hearts and our resources are dedicated um, toward manifesting a Torah of justice in, in, in the world. And it actually made me think of what happened at Ikar um, when our board unanimously approved the sanctuary designation for our community. And I, I was so grateful to, for my board's uh, support. Um, this was several years ago. Um, and I, the Shabbat came right after this board vote. And, um, and I shared in a sermon um, that we had made this decision and that we knew that this was a risk and it was gonna, it, it could be that we would be called upon to offer sanctuary um, to families risking deportation. And I was a little bit nervous to bring it to the board. And I shared that my board's reaction was, of course, this is a yes, and there must be more that we can do. And when I shared that with my community, um, a, an elderly person in the community approached me afterwards and told me her story, which I had not heard before, which was that um, she was living in Europe um, under the Nazi regime. And she was hidden by nuns uh, in a convent. The Nazis came and literally set up headquarters right next door to this convent. And she said to me that they, she realized that they risk their lives every single day having Jewish children in their basement. And she, knowing now that she has grandchildren, how loud and rambunctious children can be, she's even more astonished that they were willing to, to risk their lives to have children down there. And she said, this is literally the least that we can do today. So this is what's top of mind for me as I think about what it means to make our greatest aspirations uh, meet our core commitments in this world. And, and I wanna think it through with you together today because I, what I really wanna do is make the argument that how we bridge the gap between the world as it is and the world as it ought to be, between what we aspire to be and who we aspire to be in the world and what we actually end up becoming 
is of the utmost importance to us. And I know that this is your rabbi's Torah. Um, and so I think you'll see a lot of alignment in the way that we're thinking about some of these things. But the way that I want to approach the conversation today is to, uh, is to talk about stories, in particular core stories, meta-narratives, the stories that we tell about ourselves as individuals and as a people. So, um, so in, in the 90s, about 30 years ago, uh, at Emory, there were a couple of psychologists who started to, to look at the question of children's emotional health. And what they really wanted to understand more is how do some people find strength in really challenging times and other people seem to fall apart? And this might be a question that some of you have considered uh, or asked yourselves over the course of, um, of the last several years. I actually yesterday was able to meet Colonel Alex Vindman, who's on a book tour now because he, um, he, he wrote a book. And you wonder what makes someone Colonel Alex Vindman? What makes somebody find courage and strength and resiliency and others not? And so these two psychologists uh, were, were trying to find out if there's anything that they could learn about human behavior that would help, uh, that would help give a clue to this. Um, their names were Marshall Duke and Robin Fivish. And, and so they suspected that there was some kind of connection between resilience and family storytelling. And they created a scale called the Do You Know Scale in which they would ask children basic questions about their family history. Questions like, do you know how your parents met? Do you know where your grandparents grew up? Do you know about illnesses or injuries that your parents experienced when they were younger? Maybe jobs that they held or awards that they received or struggles that they had in their childhood. And what they found was that there was a consistent correlation between the knowledge of family stories, whether they were stories of triumph or tragedy, and high self-esteem, self-control, happiness, resilience, and a sense of family cohesion. And what that communicated to them is that a child is much more likely to develop into a person with a sense of purpose and worth and optimism, someone who knows how to use every 86,400 seconds of the day, or at least a good fraction of them for meaning, if that person feels connected to a narrative arc, to something that's bigger than, than she or he or they are. So it makes me think about the stories that I've been told as a child, the ones that really held my imagination and established a, a, the foundation of my own sense of self as a little one. It actually, I, I want to ask you to think, even as we're talking today, about some of the stories that sit at the heart of your own family narratives. How did your parents meet one another? What's your origin story? What are some of the struggles? What are some of the successes from the past? And how likely and willing are you to talk about those at the dinner table, um, to share those stories? I am once, as soon as we finish this, um, this lecture today, I'm going to officiate at a funeral of a beloved member of our community. And I, I've been sitting with, uh, with her family um, 
and, and hearing these stories, we've been sharing a lot over the course of the past couple of weeks when it was clear that she was really losing strength. And I'm astonished by the level of detail that her daughter, that Hannah's daughter knows about Hannah's parents and grandparents. They, this is a family that really took time to pass down these stories. Um, Hannah's father was actually escaped from a concentration camp. He was able to bribe a, a Nazi guard and, and able to get out of a concentration camp. And he got on a train and he fled and he arrived in Sweden where her mother, who was also a child and also a refugee, went with other Jewish children to greet the refugee Jewish children that were coming off the train with little gifts as they arrived, little sweets and treats. And that's how her mother, and, that's how Hannah's mother and father met. Um, it, it's incredible, it's 90 years, uh, 80 years ago that this happened. And the stories are with incredible detail um, to the next generation. And, and I just, I think about the way that these stories help us make meaning of the past. Sometimes telling these stories in an act of love. Sometimes we tell these stories as an act of revenge. It might be a way of protecting others from the kind of harm that we've experienced. It might be a way of ensuring vigilance or awareness or a, helping awaken our loved ones to a sense of vulnerability or perseverance that we want them to develop. But these family stories matter. And, and I realized years ago that the same is true not only for personal narratives, but also for the collective narratives that we tell. Schools, nations, faith communities are also formed by the stories that we tell. I have to admit to you that I didn't really realize this for five of my six years of rabbinical school. This isn't something that we really speak about um, in seminary. I learned this for the first time when I was already um, a young rabbi and I moved out to Los Angeles and I was invited by my friend, Reverend Ed Bacon, to come to his church for Christmas mass. And I had never been to church before. I was a Jew who was raised to be a little bit trepidatious about church. And, um, but he was my friend. He was one of my first friends when I moved out here. And so he invited me to church and I went. I sat in the front row where he put all the Jews and the Muslims um, who were his friends and his guests. And I was completely dumbfounded by the beauty of this church and by the ritual, which felt to me the way that I imagined temple ritual in the times of the Beit HaMikdash, incense and flags and and costumes and choruses. And, and I just was so moved by the beauty of it all. But I was most moved by the sermon that he gave that night, which was the story of a society that was so morally bankrupt that a young woman named Mary, who's nine months pregnant, goes into labor. And not one person in the inn is willing to give up his bed for her to give birth in dignity. And so she has to give birth out on the lawn. And what my friend Reverend Ed Bacon said that night is that Christianity is a 2000 year attempt to rectify that profound human failure, that, that we were able to live in a society in which people could be that vulnerable, their lives that meaningless, that they didn't recognize when their moral strength was needed most. 
And I remember sitting there as a young rabbi and I, I, it was a complete epiphany. I was totally blown away by this. I realized that the power of that story was enough to sustain an entire faith tradition. It wasn't my story, but I also had a story. And I'm just being honest, I had never really thought about it before. And then I started to think about what my story as a Jew was. So, so we tell stories not to relay historical events, but to really to convey critical ideas. That's why we tell these stories. And, and a really good story will help convey a, a raison d'etre, a, a, a sense of purpose beyond historical obligations and communal commitments and parental guilt and demographic fears. A really good story will help one generation tell the next generation about a kind of sense of direction in, in a world that might feel chaotic and maybe even hostile. A, a really good story will help hold up a mirror to each of us in our times of struggle to help us remember our humanity and to help us dream about something different, bigger, better than whatever is the reality we're, we're living in right now. And I realized that a collective, like a faith tradition or a Jewish community that doesn't have a core story or doesn't talk about their core story is just a social club. But when you have an animating narrative, a core story, every decision, every interaction, every moment can be read through the lens of something eternal, something that exists far beyond us, but is entirely for us. And so when I heard Ed Bacon tell his story, I gasped and I realized I, I also have a story. And my story is different from his, but it leads us to develop very similar moral mandates. And I think in many ways prepares us to be really good partners in the work of building a more just society. So, so let's talk about, about that story, that Jewish story. Um, this is a story that has animated and sustained our people for thousands of years. It has given us hope in the darkest of hours. And really it stands at the heart of absolutely everything from what I eat to how I pray to my heartache when I read the newspaper every morning. All of it is inspired by this central operating narrative, thousands of years old, 3,500 years old. It's a redemption story. It's a story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the extraction of our people from a narrow place into a place of expansive possibility. And the narrative arc of this story actually follows four of the five books of the Torah. The, the central concern of this narrative is not oppression and it's not even liberation, but it's the journey from oppression to liberation. The journey to leave behind tyranny and persecution and reclaim humanity. So, so this is a story that I imagine you all know well, because some of you have actually renamed your Zoom uh, boxes to I Love Torah and I Love Justice. <laughs> I love that um, about all of you. You know the story. This is the story of a powerful ruler who violently suppresses the Israelite minority that's living under his rule, whom he fears will one day rise up and challenge his authority. And with ruthless taskmasters, 
Pharaoh brutally enslaves the people, forcing them to endure generations of unimaginable hardship. The violence persists for so long that every Israelite alive is the descendant of an enslaved person and none alive can remember being free. So think about what that means in terms of the, in terms of the generational passage of stories. Their bodies are broken. Their spirits are nearly obliterated, but then after hundreds of years of the status quo, God hears the people's cries and redeems them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with plagues and with wonders. This really is the origin story of the Jewish people. This is the story that attests to the eternal possibility of freedom over slavery and dignity over degradation, of, of self-determination over systematized oppression. And really in a world of cruelty and injustice, this story is a core testament to the inextinguishable yearning, human and divine for freedom. It's the origin of the dream of a just society. And it's so important that when God reveals God's self at the beginning of the 10 commandments to human beings in the revelation, God identifies as I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God doesn't identify as the creator of the world. God identifies as the one who takes you out of Egypt because this story is the foundational and, and really the defining feature of God's relationship with human beings. So this is a powerful story and it's a well-known one and it's even more powerful because of two elemental truths. This is one, not a story about one time, but a story about all time, which means it's, we're not trying to recount a one-time historical event. We're trying to offer a paradigm for what redemption will look like. And two, it's a story not for one people, the Israelite people and their descendants, the Jews, but a story for all people. And I'm gonna say a little bit more about what I mean about both of those. And I'm really very much looking forward to being in conversation with you about all of this uh, when I'm done laying all of this out. So, so what do I mean by not one time, but all time? The first Seder, the first Seder takes place before the Israelites have even left Egypt. On the night of the final and the most awful of the plagues, the death of the firstborn, before they even set out on, on what will be a long walk toward freedom, they are still surrounded by persecution and by plague. And they already begin the work of preserving the memory of the experience of enslavement. The suffering, yes, and also the promise of freedom. They're already contemplating how they will pass that message on to their children and their grandchildren. Because the, assum the assumption really from the start is that the Exodus is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing process. It's a daily reality. And so even when, when Moses asks God at the burning bush, who shall I tell them you are? What's your name? And God says, I will be what I will be. Our rabbis say that what that means is I will be with you in this suffering and I will be with you in future sufferings too. So imagine that. They're just getting out of the hellscape of enslavement in Egypt and they're already being told 
that there will be pogroms and there will be crusades and there may even be gas chambers one day. They're already being told that the worst is not over, but the promise is that you have a narrative arc and that I will be with you there as I am with you now. This story does not live in the past. It stands outside of time and outside of space. It's kind of an eternal frame of reference for every struggle since then. And you might wonder why, why I'm focusing on the Exodus now in the month of Elul when you'd think we would be talking about this in the springtime. Because this message is not one that we tell only in the springtime. We have a deep dive into it for sure um, when we approach Passover. But the memory of the Exodus from Egypt is part of nearly every Jewish ritual experience, right? Jewish liturgy and practice is actually set up so that we will have repeated encounters with this narrative. At the start of the new month on Rosh Chodesh, we remember the Exodus from Egypt. On every single holiday, we remember the Exodus from Egypt. On every Shabbat, when we hold Kosyain, when we hold a, a glass in our hand of Kiddush, for Kiddush, we say, Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim. We are, every time we say Shema, Three times a day, we remember the exodus from Egypt. We remember the drowning of Pharaoh's chariots in the sea. Our tradition sets up a regular collision with the Torah of ultimate possibility, a repeated articulation of our greatest aspirations that all people can move from degradation to dignity, from darkness to light. And as much as the world has changed, this story and the insights that have been catalyzed by this story remain absolutely central to Jewish religious practice even 3,500 years ago. So I wanna say that over the years, there've been very controversial sermons by rabbinic colleagues. There have been studies by archeologists and by historians who are really trying to grapple with the historicity of, of the story of the Israelite enslavement in Egypt and, and really their redemptive their journey to Canaan. And you might find these analyses uh, intellectually interesting, but I find them totally spiritually irrelevant because the, the, the Exodus narrative was never intended to be a historical recounting. It was meant to be an eternal promise, an eternal truth, a truth that is attested in every single individual and collective journey toward liberation from that time forward. And that's why you hear stories of Jews facing liquidation in the Warsaw Ghetto who are still preparing for Seder. And you hear stories about Jewish prisoners in death camps who are saving flour so that they can try to make matzah and who are giving each other strength in the deep darkness of night by whispering memorized verses from the Haggadah because this story and its, its moral message have been a source of strength through the darkest chapters of our history. And it's so central to, to, our, to our liturgy and to our experience. It's a really radical story because it places the religious life as a perpetual, unfinished, moral and spiritual revolution, a testament to the centrality of human dignity and justice in a world of systemic oppression and a testament to the possibility of change in a world of political intransigence and stagnancy. To, to the inextinguishable yearning, human and divine, for freedom and justice. And that's why I say that this is a story not for one time, 
but for all time. And the second claim is that this is a story not for one people, but for all people. It's not only descendants of the Israelites who, who find meaning in this story. Many of you might have heard um, political philosopher Michael Walter uh, talk about the Exodus, and, and he writes an uh, incredible book, Exodus and um, and Exodus and Liberation, is it called? Exodus and Redemption? Um, Exodus and Revolution. Wherever people know the Bible and experience oppression, the Exodus has sustained their spirits and inspired their resistance. That's what he writes. This is a perpetual lesson that has to be learned and relearned as long as tyranny and oppression persist. And Walter famously writes, wherever you are, it's probably Egypt. So think about that for a moment. For many American Jews, this place is not Egypt for us. It, it may have felt like it at times over the last few years. And it's certainly there have been chapters of incredible struggle. But for many American Jews, this place is not Egypt. And yet this place is Egypt for someone else. And so part of the lesson of this core story that our family has told generation to generation for 3,500 years is, um, is that this story still matters today. If not because you are among the oppressed, then perhaps because you are among the privileged whose obligation is to lift up the oppressed. There, there's, a, there's a museum of the Bible in Washington, DC um, that holds a Bible in it that was designed for use in worship by enslaved people in the British West Indies. So it was published in um, 1807. It's called the Slave Bible. And what they did is they edited this Bible with surgical precision to exclude all references to the Exodus from Egypt. So I wanna ask you to imagine um, our, our Bible without any Moses, without any burning bush, without any split sea, without Sinai. And the reason they did this, the logic of the slave Bible was that there is so much power, there is so much danger in this sacred story. And we're enslaved people to witness God identifying with the oppressed, were they to witness this holy opposition to empire were they to see the triumph of justice and faith over even the strongest regime of the ancient world, Pharaoh's regime, surely they would see themselves in the ancient Israelite struggle for dignity. So how could that story not plant the seeds of rebellion among enslaved people? And in other parts of the enslaved Americas where they didn't edit it out, that's exactly what happened. Enslaved people who came in contact with this narrative, they did identify with the Israelites. White Southern slave owners were seen as the new world embodiment of Pharaoh. And Harriet Tubman and John Brown and Frederick Douglass became modern day Moseses. And in Latin America, this, this Exodus narrative has been, has been seen in the context of political and economic struggle from torture to repression to poverty and war, inspiring oppressed people everywhere in seeking to achieve liberation. And it's not only political movements, it's individuals who have found that kind of strength in this story. So this story is not ours alone. 
it's a particular story that has broadly universal implications. And that I think matters profoundly to us. And one more sort of dichotomy that I wanna lift up for us, which is really this story persisted over time, not only because of the persistence of tyranny and oppression, but also because the Exodus narrative contains within it two stories, two distinct messages for us. In times of struggle, whether that struggle is because of violence or persecution or pandemic, the Exodus narrative is a kind of unceasing, stubborn reminder that our lives and human history are on a trajectory from darkness to light, from narrowness to possibility. This story, I like to say, this is the closest that we come to the generational transmission of hope, which is the most precious and the most daring intervention in times of darkness. When Pharaoh decreed that all Hebrew baby boys were gonna be drowned in the Nile, according to the rabbinic tradition, Amram, who was one of the leaders of the Israelite community, divorced Yochavet. He divorced his wife because he was afraid that if they had a baby, that baby would die. And so very quickly, because he was a leader, all of the Israelite men followed suit and they all divorced their wives. Do you know this? Do you know this Midrash? Have you heard this story? So, but Amram and Yochavet already had a daughter, Miriam. And Miriam, we are told, was five years old at the time. And when her parents divorced, she became enraged. And there's a midrash that says she approached her father and she said, you are worse than Pharaoh because Pharaoh only punishes the boys and you doom the girls too. Pharaoh's decree might be thwarted, but your decree will surely be fulfilled. And Miriam's parents know that she's right. They, they understand that the greatest victory that they could hand the tyrant is to stop living and to stop loving. And so they remarry and soon after Moses is conceived, it's really an incredible twist on our story, which is our rabbis living in the patriarchy as they did, had the foresight to understand that Miriam, a small girl, was the one who would turn the tide of this story. And had Miriam not spoken out, had she not had that kind of prophetic vision, the Jewish people wouldn't have been redeemed. And for this, Miriam's considered a prophet. But actually what she gives is more than, than an act of prophecy. It's an act of hope. It's an offering of hope as an act of resistance. She's planting the seeds for the future. She, she's saying that hope is not a drug. It's a force for social transformation that sometimes in times of incredible struggle, the most audacious thing that we can do is future orient. It's find hope. It's to cast our gaze to the future from within the depths of darkness. That's the most courageous expression of human agency because hope requires faith that the world is not as the world as it's intended to be. That love is more powerful than hatred that compassion will prevail over cruelty and that every one of us has a role in realizing a more just and loving world, that, that the redemption will come even, even if not in our lifetime. And I think that that long view, that hopeful view, it's not a concession to evil. It's really a clear eyed recognition that in order to achieve the just world that we seek, 
we have to establish the foundation for the realization of our dreams now if we will ever see it in a distant future because transformative change takes time. And so hope is actually a sustained protest against despair. It's a protest against impossibility and inevitability and exhaustion. And, and this is part of what we're handed with this Exodus narrative as our core story. Any moment could be the inflection point between the, the dark, teary night and the joyous dawn. But it's not only about planting the seed of hope. And this is where we make the connection between our greatest aspirations and our core commitments. Because when we future orient, when we, when we invest in a hopeful narrative, we're imagining what might be possible, but it's not enough to actually imagine it. After 40 years of wandering, the Israelite people, former slaves, are going to enter into the land of Canaan. And there, they will have to build systems and structures that will ensure a free and just and equitable society. The society that they dreamt of for generations under Egyptian bondage. And in achieving their own liberation, the question that they will have to grapple with will shift from how do I maintain hope when I'm powerless to how do I maintain humility and compassion and purpose when I'm powerful? And that could be the most critical question for us in this time. Because 36 times we receive prescriptions in the Torah, we, a community of former slaves and descendants of former slaves on how to treat the stranger, the foreigner, the other, the outsider, the vulnerable one. And we receive all kinds of categories of treatment. Not only are we called not to harm the stranger, but we are called to leave the corners of our field for the stranger. We're called to actually love the stranger, to bring them into our homes and the basements of our, of our synagogue, to remodel the downstairs of our synagogue so that there are showers and bathrooms so that families of seven can live in there as long as they need to until the threat of deportation is abated. We are called not only not to harm, but to actively work to bring the gear into our homes and our lives so that we can actually transform those aspirations into core commitments that will transform the world. In other words, our tradition is saying to us, never forget that you were once a slave and your freedom now comes with a price, the price of remembering and acting in a way that's befitting of descendants of enslaved people. Because to be free, means not only to live as a free person, but to build a society that will stand in counter testimony to the society in which you were oppressed, to build a collective that affirms the dignity of every single human being, the humanity of every single human being. So for the first time in hundreds of years, the Israelite people are finally going home. They're going home to a sovereign state where they're not gonna be ruled by by the whims of some evil empire, by their own values, guided by their own priorities and aspirations. And that's the question for them. And that's the question for us. Who are we really? Not who are we in opposition 
to someone else's abuse of power. But who are we when we ourselves are given the power? Coming out of Egypt, coming out of the land of oppression and degradation and cruelty, we have two choices. When given the chance, should we rule by the same cruelty that we ourselves face? Or should we build a society that's rooted in love and committed in justice? Should we perpetuate the injustice and the inequality just because we can? Or should we fight to build a reality that's really rooted in human dignity for ourselves and for all people? This is what the Torah is doing when it explicitly links the treatment of the, of the other, of the ger, to our memory of what it was like for us to be experienced, to experience the oppression in Egypt. Our greatest aspirations mean nothing if they don't translate into core commitments. Our story doesn't only build resiliency and hope, our story demands of us moral action. We're reminded again and again that the work of leaving Egypt is not yet done until we are all free, said Emma Lazarus. None, we are none of us free. So I, I'm eager to hear your thoughts and your questions and to engage in a little bit of conversation with you. Awesome. Awesome, Rabbi Brown, so inspiring, so awesome as always, and uh, feel really charged up. Yeah, our first question here is from our friend, uh, Stan Hammerman. Actually, I'm going to speak first. Um, and I just wanted to thank thank Rabbi Browse. This was absolutely an amazing uh, as a lecture. I loved every minute of it. And I just wanted, I don't really have a question except to say, I loved what really you said about the origin stories. And I had the privilege of just celebrating my dad's 95th birthday with him. And I'm learning every day a little more about his origin story, which I realized how little I did know about that. So thank you so much for the thoughtfulness and making me think and 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 always your words are an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Uh, just outstanding. I do have a question. I, last night, I made the mistake of watching the nightly news. And uh, <laughs> this lead story was the the entire planet is on fire, followed by a governor who says you can't wear masks at schools, followed by a Congress that do doesn't do anything. And the only good news that gave me any hope was that you can get a good deal on credit cards right now. <laughs> so I'm gonna ask you, Rabbi, what gives you hope? Thank you, Stan. I've made that mistake too of turning on the nightly news. <laughs> um, <laughs> Listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, it's my job, Andy and Shmuley can uh, attest to this. It's our job to give people hope. And it has not been easy over the course of uh, this, this incredible time that we're living through. Um, I think I am fundamentally kind of a hopeful person. I'm not necessarily an optimistic person, but I'm a hopeful person and even still, um, it's been it's been hard to find hope um, in the course of this of this period um, because I see what great lengths people are going to to undermine and cause harm to one another and to our earth, um, which we see as a precious and diminishing resource that will not be replenished. Um, there's a 
there's an incredible midrash um, that the rabbis write a thousand years before the industrial revolution, where they imagine God walking Adam Harishon, the first person around the garden of Eden and saying, be really careful what you do with my creation, because whatever you destroy, no one after you will be able to fix it. Davarze taluibi. He said, God's, God, Adam has to say, this matter is, a, oh no, I'm sorry, I mixed this up. So uh, this is Moshe saying, the matter is up to me. Adam says, there's no one after me that can come and fix this. And I feel, I feel, dis, I do feel a great concern because so much of what's been broken will not be able to be fixed here. Some of the damage of the last several years, it will take us generations to repair the, cult, the culture has suffered because of what we've seen and, and witnessed and experienced. The vitriol, the lies, the cruelty, the devastation, and the environmental degradation. And yet, I, this is where I, I find myself immensely grateful that our tradition set up this, this system of Shabbat. Six days a week, you do everything you can to transform this reality, to, to fight, to write, to work, to till. And then on the seventh day, you stop and you remember what you're fighting for and you dream again about what's possible. And if it weren't for that, I would, I personally, and I suspect others here too, I would have run out of fuel over the last, um, over the last many years, and I would have run out of hope. But, but learning to live in a, a kind of rhythm of engagement, or as, as Rabbi Yitz Greenberg says, I think he calls it a, a rhythm of perfection, right? There's a prophetic resistance, he says, that's built into our calendar. And if you take it seriously, then once a week, you stop despairing over how much pain we're all in and how much trouble there is and how now this is a pandemic by choice. Forgive me for saying it, but it's true. We should not be where we are right now. But people chose, made choices that have led us to be where we are. And, and, and in, in, if you're fighting all the time and exerting all of the, every ounce of strength you've got to fight, to fight against that reality, you will die. But then you take a day and you step out of it and you sing, you eat, you look at people you love instead of looking at your uh, devices all the time. And you remember that there's something bigger than all of this. And that that dream of every single human being having dignity, the dream of, of being on a trajectory from narrowness to expansiveness and from degradation to dignity, the dream of living in a world in which every single person is not only created in God's own image, but is treated like we're created in God's own image. That that dream has outlived any of, of the trials of the moment that we're in right now. And that dream will persist. And that's what gives me hope. That's where I find my strength so that when Havdalah comes Saturday night and, and I turn back on, I see all the 250 alerts from the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and Haaretz and, and I, I want to break again, but I have a new kind of strength. My, my spirit is stronger because I've reconnected with my sense of what's actually possible and why we're fighting for all of this in the first place. Amazing, amazing. 
So, um, so Rabbi Bros, I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw one your way. Thinking about um, two different types of of Jews today, neither of which I'm critical of, but both of which I'm perplexed by. One is kind of let's call them kind of a hyper tribalist or hyper particularist. One who looks at the Exodus narrative and they see nothing universal. All they see is a story of peoplehood. All they see is a story about anti-Semitism, a story about Jewish security. And this may come from trauma, it may come from ideology, it may come from fear, but there's no space left for loving the stranger. It is just about Jews. How does this person begin to transition from that place they're so ingrained in? Then on the other end, the person who looks at the Exodus and sees nothing particular, nothing Jewish, it's purely a universalistic story and sees nothing unique that Judaism has to contribute to society. I'm in the revolution, so I don't need this Judaism. That's all it brought me to do was join the revolution. How do we get that person to once again return to the Exodus as part of a love for Torah itself? It's such a great question. And it actually reminds me of something that I learned from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs many years ago, who said that the way that we are good universalists is by being good particularists. And the way that we're good particulars is by being good universalists, that those two, those two ideas are not in contradiction with one another. He said, the way you learn to love everyone is by loving someone, right? That's how our hearts, that's how, that's how our hearts are moved. The way that I can empathize with the worry that parents have for their children is because I, I can feel it. I know it and I understand it well. I look, this, the way that we are, as Jews in the world today, it's all, it is all a choice. We can choose to read these narratives as narrowly or as expansively as we would like. And, and, and it has happened to me many times where I have shared my read of the Exodus from Egypt with people who read this story differently. And they would like to mock and dismiss my read of the Exodus saying, this is not a story about redemption. This is a story about redemption of the Israelites from Pharaoh 3,500 years ago. Don't make this a story about redemption, begadol. And this is not a, a, a big story. This is a small story. And, and as much as I've tried to see it through their eyes, I really, I must admit, I cannot. Because you can't read the story of the Exodus and not read all of the subsequent prescriptions about how we are called to live as a result of having experienced the exodus from Egypt. I actually believe that there's some theological malpractice going on. You are not judging. I, I have a little bit of judgment here, I have to admit. I believe there's a little bit of theological malpractice in our tradition that allows people to look at story, at a core story, that is so clearly and obviously and fundamentally teaching us that we all have a muscle to move from slavery to freedom and then saying, but really it's only us. This has nothing to do with you. Your oppression is not my business. Your suffering, your struggle is not my business. I honestly see it as theological malpractice. When I'm trying to help people um, see it my way, I wouldn't talk about it that way. I'm not sure that that's a helpful frame, but that's what I see. <laughs> and I think that what we're witnessing now in our Jewish community is, is in some ways a, a kind of, there's a, there is a great uh, polarization 
that's happening in our community between people who broadly identify as particularist and broadly identify as universalists, between those who live in a kind of mentality, we are a nation that stands apart. No people has ever suffered the way our people have suffered. The world is against us. Um, we must fight for our own because nobody will ever fight for us. And those who, who live in the mindset, it's not good for people to be alone. It's not good for a community to be alone. We must stand in solidarity. And some of them, to the extreme, so much so that they stand in greater solidarity with those who are not Jewish than even those who are, right? Their hearts can't even break when, when Jews are targeted. And I, I really object to both. I really, I mean, my, my, I tr none of us can read fully objectively. We all read the text and hear the story based on our own experiences in the world. But I object to both. Elu elu, they're both right and they're both wrong. And so what I'm trying to, to, what I'm trying to put forward is a way of embracing both, a, a way of saying, yes, this is a particular story. And yes, this is a universal story. And yes, we are separate and apart from the world. And, and sometimes we're very painfully reminded of that. And yes, we are also part of the human community. And, and, and we have to stand in solidarity. And there are many others who are also being targeted and frankly are more on the front lines than the Jews often are. And so I believe what we have to do is marry these two ideas and reject a kind of false binary that, that sees Jews as either, uh, as either one or the other. Amazing friends, as we are here in the month of Elul, uh, working to do teshuva, working to grow, leading up to Rosh Hashanah in less than a month. I offer us that challenge, and I hope you'll throw it back to me, that to believe in the Exodus is not some historical phenomenon, as, as Rabbi Brau said, primarily to shake and believe in historicity, but it is actually to live with the conviction of putting justice into practice each day, to actually live the Exodus in our own life today that that revolution continues. What we're doing here at VBM is learning to act. We want to learn and put that learning into action. Rabbi Brous, you've moved us further down that path of seeing how this powerful narrative calls us uh, to be a people of conscience today um, and uh, to be a part of, of this crucial process. Thank you so much for all you're doing at IKAR and in the broader world and for joining us today. Thank you, Stan and Cheryl, for continuing to be models of what it means to commit to Jewish learning and to build this lecture series to help to reach more Jews. Uh, Jessica, thank you for that beautiful tribute you offered. And all of you, thank you for continuing to learn and act with us every day of the week. We're learning and acting every day together because of all of you supporting us and joining us. Thank you, Chodesh Tov. Chodesh Tov. Have a great rest of the, day. the king is in the field. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>